0: So this week, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Dr. Seth Walk to discuss the microbiome and how it is related to numerous aspects of our health, including immunity, food metabolism, diabetes, and even autism. We also touched upon the gut-brain axis and how the microbiome is the interface between the outside world and the nervous system. About five minutes into the recording, uh, it actually stopped and Dr. Walk was explaining how serotonin is produced in the gut and how sterile mouse models or mice without microbiomes can actually be used to study this once they're colonized. The conversation picks up almost exactly where we left off and I think we did a pretty good job of recovering everything um, that we missed. Seth is an Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology and his research concerns the microbiome and its role in arsenic detoxification, C. difficile, and the metabolic control of the gut-brain axis and familial dysautonomia, which he is investigating with Francis Lefcourt and Valerie Copier. Overall, I think this episode is just the beginning, and hopefully you guys have heard of the microbiome before. If not, this is a great introduction to it and how important it is for our health and how amazing it is. So you study mostly microbiology here.
1: Uh huh. Yeah.
0: What drew you to microbiology? What drew you to that?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I, even in high school, I wasn't really... I didn't even know what microbes were, right? Like, you can't see them. You can sort of tell that they're there because they either change color or they smell or something. But, you know, like, we all know about infectious disease and, and those kind of things. And that was always exciting. But um, sort of the other side of the coin is, what about all the microbes that don't make us sick, right? Mm. And I got really excited about that in uh, as an undergrad in college and trying to understand whether microbes follow the same rules that uh, larger animals do. Yeah. Um, so, like, when you look out and you see trees or plants or animals um they sort of have these seasonal changes and successional changes and just their ecology um is very uh visual once you pick up on those cues and and whether microbes do that or they do something totally different um and the more i started looking at microbes the more fascinated i became and obviously we work with some pathogens and um there's a need there uh, human health need to mm-hmm. understand pathogens and how they make us sick and how they get around, but really uh, there's so much that we don't understand, just fundamental things about microbes, yeah. and it's a very open area for research. So yeah,
0: because you, you work with um, C. diff, right. yeah, Is that
1: Yeah, we do some research with, uh, it used to be Clostridium difficile, and, and now it's called Clostridioides, it got changed. Oh. Because it wasn't really a Clostridium, but it's still called C. diff for short. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I became well. I started doing that research at the University of Michigan in my postdoc, where I worked in a hospital and actually saw a lot of patients that had it. And uh, I would go on uh, the clinical rounds with my postdoc advisor, who was a clinician. Yeah, it was such a devastating disease, and it affects you know older. Uh, patients a lot more than than middle aged or younger people, so um, it was really a really an eye opener and sort of a direct connection to how my research could help. Yeah. So
0: my only interaction with it is with in a clinical setting, and it's terrifying when you have patients that have it because yeah. you're like, how do I control the spread of this microbe? Right. When it's transmitted, you know, from feces to hands to mouth. Right. And you're just like, this is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like.
1: Yeah, it was interesting about I don't know when it first when they first started uh putting these ethanol uh hand sanitizers in the hospitals, but it turns out that um C. difficile makes this uh it's it's called a spore, but it's just it's a it's a basically a nut, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very small and very very I guess resistant to breakdown by normal cleaning products and actually to enrich for spores in the lab we use ethanol so these ethanol washes are just like totally ineffective and a lot of folks you know in the hospital you go in and out of a room and you, you wash your hands with these sanitizers but yeah they do nothing for c diff um, which is pretty remarkable but that's you know that microbe in particular it's special because we see it a lot and it's it's um you know, definitely on our radar, but uh as as unique and as interesting as it is, it's you know, there's many other bugs out there that do similar things and they're um they're just fascinating. So yeah to study those and figure out why they don't cause disease or how they can maybe benefit us um has become pretty important in our research.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so we there's a lot of things that actually help us in the gut and protect against C. diff and After moving here, I became really interested in what those were. So we still work with C. diff a little bit, mainly in clinical studies where people wanna know, is it this strain or is it that strain and how somebody got infected? Was it transmission between people or did they just get reinfected by the same one they had before? But um, really what we're interested in is how the rest of the microbiome or the microbes in the gut at least uh, protect against C. diff and that's that's been fun it's -hmm. been fun to to get into that because like i said we just there's fundamental things that we don't understand about the gut and the microbes that live there so Mm -hmm. it's been it's been a journey but
0: yeah you always hear you know as a cbn undergrad you always hear like oh 90 of the serotonin you make is produced in the gut yeah is that true
1: that is true um a lot of it's still made by our cells, but it's made in response to microorganisms um, yeah so when uh, When I first got here to study some of these things, um, we had to have new models and uh, oftentimes we use small animals to to try to mimic what what human either human disease or um, something about the human uh, system and so these mice are available that don't have any microorganisms. They're called germ-free mice, and they require special housing, obviously, and they live in these hermetically sealed containers, and they're very uh, very much healthy, but uh, they're very sensitive to disease and yeah. sensitive to um, metabolic disorders and things like this that our microbes are, are important for. And so, yeah, things like serotonin, when you look in germ free mice that don't have any um, microbes associated yeah. with them, have very uh, much lower uh, serotonin production. Yeah.
0: Before we got cut off by the recording thing, we yeah. were talking about um, C. diff and like fecal transplants and how that is one of the more like yeah. advantageous treatments for them.
1: Right. Yeah, so the, the primary risk factor for C. diff infection is antibiotic perturbation. So folks go to the hospital for something completely unrelated to uh, GI distress or anything, like for a heart attack or a stroke. And, mm-hmm. and when they're in there, they get on an antibiotic. And a couple of days later, they'll start having symptoms like, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty severe symptoms. We're talking like mm-hmm. 20 to 30 loose stools a day and uh, very debilitating. And this is on top of what they've been admitted for. So mm-hmm. it's it's really concerning. And so it's been known for a long time that antibiotics are uh, doing something to the microbiome. Of course, C. diff is a bacteria, so clinicians just give you more antibiotics that suppresses the microbiome even more. And so the idea came about, oh, probably five, 10 years ago that, uh, you know, if we not just uh, stop the antibiotic and hope it doesn't come back, but when we stop the antibiotic, we come back with maybe some beneficial microbes and do the stool transplantation. And so they got stool samples from healthy uh, relatives and would establish those in the uh, colon of of folks that are affected. And, you know, lo and behold, it has an amazing uh, success rate. So it's about... The last data that I've seen is something like 80%, eighty percent, eighty, eighty-five percent effective uh, the first time, and then if folks uh, need another one, it's it can be up to ninety-five percent wow. effective. So the cure rate is really, really good, and uh, it just goes to show that yeah, the microbiome is really important for protecting us against uh, pathogens like yeah. C. Diff.
0: Yeah, because yeah. it has it has a role in immunity. Right? Yeah. How, how?
1: Yeah. So. <laughs> Fecal transplants um, in adults, yeah, they they tend, I mean, once you're an adult and your immune system's fully developed, your microbiome has learned to interact with those immune cells and vice versa. But as a a child, you know, you're not born with a fully functional immune system. Part of your adaptive immune system, like your T and B cells, are still maturing. And one of the ways that they mature is they sense and respond to antigens in your system. Some of those antigens are your own, and that's how the body develops ways to protect against autoimmune disease or immune system, where the immune system attacks different tissues of our bodies, but also they sense and respond to microbial antigens so they don't freak out and start attacking the GI tract. And so the microbiome is really important for educating our immune system and our immune response. And if you wanna do an experiment to test that, all you have to do is go to uh, a developing country and and eat local and get traveler's diarrhea (laughs) and and you'll understand very quickly that the folks that live there, their immune response has um, adapted to the local microbes and they no longer get sick um, versus our immune systems. That never see those pathogens or those bacteria, they kind of freak out. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty clear experiment there that a lot of people do and un- involuntarily. Uh, so there's a lot of corresponding, you know, there's a lot of crosstalk. It's yeah. called
0: yeah. between
1: ourselves and the, and microbes.
0: Are you familiar with how? kids born via C-section, how their immune systems vary versus yeah. natural birth. Like, to me, that seems like it would be pretty drastic. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting how it's sort of done that, right? And C-sections are, are super important. You yeah. know, we can't downplay how important they are, both for mom and for baby. But children born that way aren't exposed to the same microbes early in life. But in combination with C-section, you know, we've definitely cleaned up our environments, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a combinatorial effect. It's not just sort of C-section that will put you on this direct uh, trajectory or that, but it's, you know, how clean the environment has become. We, we wash everything and we, we really remove a lot of microbes. And not only do we remove r- microbes, but we select for certain ones
0: mm-hmm.
1: that can maybe resist cleaning agents and things and those tend not to be as good for us as others but yeah c-section babies you know don't experience the the microbial flora of of the um
0: of the birth canal yeah right? yeah and, so... and
1: they've been trying to maybe they've done there's ongoing clinical trials actually where the delivering clinician will try to um, take a cloth and seed the newborn with microbes from the birth canal. And, and they've had mixed results with mm-hmm. those. Um, they're not, I just saw some, uh, a podcast the other day <laughs> on that. And, uh, it's not, it's not as straightforward as they thought. They thought they would see this really beneficial effect and they're not really clear on why they didn't. But I think it comes back to the fact that not only are, are we doing, uh, these C-sections, but we're also cleaning up the baby's environment. And, mm-hmm. And we get a lot of microbes from our environment and things we touch. If you've ever seen a kid crawling around and, you know, licking the floor and, you know, the pets and things, uh, it kind of makes sense, right? Our interaction with our environment is important for our bodies and developing homeostasis and and our immune response and our metabolisms and everything. So, yeah, too clean can be bad, but you need to be clean. (laughs) We still, um, we don't want folks living in the dirt and getting sick on, on things like tetanus and right. other things that we know are pathogenic, but we got to be careful.
0: It's yeah. a balance, like yeah. everything. Yeah. If you don't mind, would you mind backtracking and going mm-hmm. back to my question about the microbiome and diabetes and yeah. metabolic diseases?
1: Yeah. So obviously when we eat something, you know, our cells are able to get nutrients from our food as, as that food gets broken down. But microbes are right there and they sort of get first whack at it. So when we eat diets that are rich in sugars you know, and fat, microbes become adjusted to that and, and we select for certain microbes because of it. And over time, that community of microbes that are in our gut may produce uh, certain metabolites that are, that can exacerbate certain diseases like diabetes. And what I mean by exacerbate is, you know, diabetic folks are, there's a component of their genetics that help promote that disease. There's maybe a component in their environment that helps promote it, but more often than not, it's diet and exercise that really tips the balance. And part of the diet, component is what the microbes do with the diet and that area can be adjusted we can it looks like that there could be some therapeutic intervention there to help establish microbes that say would take more of the calories out of the diet and and leave less for the host and in doing so you know decrease fat intake decrease uh sugar intake that kind of thing so there's there's potential there but yeah it was it's really interesting when you read the literature. you can actually take a, you can take a group of mice and put them on a high-fat diet, and they become diabetic. But the interesting thing is you can take just the microbes that live in their G.I. tract and give those microbes to naive mice, and they'll become diabetic
0: no even way. without the
1: high-fat diet.
0: No way.: Right.
1: So there is a cause in the microbiome that leads to uh, diabetic, at least signs of diabetes. And so, these, there's, because there's this association, now we can figure out why and, wow. and who's causing it. Yeah, um, yeah so there's, there's groundbreaking research like that that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, it's not just an association like, yeah, we see different microbes in diabetic people, but there has been uh, these studies that show that there is cause, causation.
0: Um, Do you know if there's any studies on intermittent fasting or prolonged fasting and the effect on the microbiome?
1: You know, I saw some research on fasting the other day, and it's not my area, (laughs) um, but it is fascinating. And I'm a big fan of, you know, these studies that, new studies that look at different areas. But this study in particular was addressing, in part, the effect of fasting on cognition. And it turns out fasting is is pretty good at i guess peaking our brain function yeah and part of that has an influence well definitely changes the microbes in the microbial community in the gut now where that study needs to go next is to figure out you know like i was saying before with the diabetes study if they take that microbiome from fasting individuals and can recapitulate brain function in naive Mm -hmm. animals then that would show causation right now there's, a, there's a, an association, but I don't think the causation has been shown yet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would love to see a study, and it's so easy to say, they should do a study on this, yeah. and then you just know there's hours poured into a single study. But it would be so interesting to see a study done on the changes in the microbiome. hmm with, like, a three- or four-day fast and there's nothing, you know, water and salt. Like, how is that going to change the microbiome? Yeah. Well, there's
1: been microbiome studies of uh, distance runners Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of extreme athletes that do these 50- and 100-mile runs, and it's it's remarkable. I mean, the things that, um, you know, the microbial activity increases a lot because those organisms are looking for food as well. But the capacity of microbes to play into our endurance and our uh, ability to perform athletically is, it's a very open field right now. Mm. Um, Because oftentimes we think of a runner's microbiome versus a non-runner's microbiome, but we don't realize that a runner in the true sense has been training for months and months and months. So they've been training not just their muscles and not just their cells, but also their microbiome to help them perform. And we don't know how much of their, you know, the variation in performance is due to perhaps things that live in the gut. Could be that you can maximize your athletic performance by maximizing your microbes. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's in part due to the difference in food metabolism based on the microbiome?
1: Probably it has a lot to do with metabolism. Yeah. 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 Yep. And how you store energy. Yeah.
0: Uh Yeah. So you mentioned briefly earlier um, the microbiome affecting the nervous system and innervation. Yeah. How does...
1: So this is an area that? that not a lot of work's been done on, and it's a new area called the gut-brain axis. We've been lucky enough to to get involved with that through a consortium. So there's, there's three folks here that are working on it, uh, myself and Valerie Copier, who's a mm-hmm. She's a biochemist and and Francis Lefcourt, who's a neuroscientist. And so we have microbiology with uh biochemistry and with neuroscience. And and so the studies in the field suggest that these critical points in our life, in our development, where our brain is going through maturation, are the times in our life also where we're starting to get this crosstalk going with our microbes. And so Is that just a coincidence or is there some functional responses there? And it turns out that, you know, if you manipulate the microbes, then that in turn manipulates brain function, the number of synapses that are made in our brain, but also how our nerves innervate the tissue. The peripheral nervous system uh, is very important. It's, it's, It's how we sense and respond to our diet and how we sense and respond to changes in our body. And and those nerves, those nerve endings actually go right up to the tips of the gut that there's one single cell layer between the tips of those nerves and microbes that live in our GI tract. Yeah. And we don't really understand a lot about that, like how those synapses, how those nerves find those areas, what they are looking for and what draws them to those locations. Right now, we just know that if we uh, kill the microbes um, or raise these germ-free mice and look at the same nerves, they, they have a different, different biology. And so it's fascinating to think that microbes could be not just you know giving us these compounds from our diet, but they actually educate our immune system and our nervous system. They help it innervate. They help us get cues from uh, what we eat and what's in our GI tract. So that could be, uh, that could be, it's a big area, right? And, and it's cool because no one, no one person can probably understand all of that. It takes a, it takes a village, it takes a team Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not trained as a neuroscientist and uh, definitely not trained as a biochemist or, uh, you know, my microbiology skills are just uh, in that little box. So. What enables this kind of study is um, collaboration. Mm-hmm. And that's really neat because Francis is like two doors down and, and Valerie comes over all the time. And so we have a, we have a really collaborative effort going on there,
0: nice. which is fun. Nice. Yeah. It almost seems like from my you know, novice understanding of neuroscience, it almost seems like the gut would has a, a chemical electrical signal. Yeah. Like if the if it's synapsing, the only reason yeah. why a neuron would be somewhere is if it's synapsing with right. something else. Yeah. In so, the gut.
1: And I I didn't get into these details, but there's a cell type in our body that's called enterochromaffin cells. Okay. And so, well, let me back up one one step. <laughs> so we have a single cell layer called the epithelium yeah. in our gut that separates us from microbes from we call it the outside world because it's just a tube that goes right through us. So there's one single cell layer, really, that separates and forms these tight junctions to, to make a barrier. And all of those cells that are in the epithelium, they're not the same. There are different cell types in there. And one of those cell types, called enterochromaffin cells, it appears makes synapses with nerves in the peripheral nervous system. Not only that, but certain microbes, not all microbes, but only certain certain ones, can promote those cells to signal onto nerves. And so, yeah, it looks like a real uh, phenotype or biology that's happening where microbes influence our cells to synapse with nerves right along the GI tract. And how that becomes established and what promotes homeostasis, what does homeostasis look like? Can we restore those by changing one or two of those partners is going to be really interesting to figure out.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, maybe like if the gut produces 90% of serotonin, maybe there's a a systemic or a non-neural use for serotonin. Possibly, possibly not because it's a neurotransmitter. Yeah. So it's probably.
1: Well, I mean, there's other neurotransmitters too, and we see similar patterns, right? So serotonin is, is very important and, you know, circadian rhythms and mood and these things. But GABA is another one. Uh, GABA is made by certain microbes. It's, uh, it's a metabolite that's produced during a stress response, Mm -hmm. like to acid and things. So, you know, microbes can have a potent effect on neurotransmitters and the way that, uh, our nerves fire. So yeah, I, I don't think it's for, I don't think it's a coincidence like that, that you find these associations and, uh, you know there's been studies clinical studies now in uh different neurologic uh diseases and disorders um one of which is uh autism there was a clinical trial that that autistic children and they did a placebo control trial and looked and mm-hmm. see whether fecal transplantation would help mm-hmm. and it they did a short-term study where they looked at a lot of times autistic kids will have um some GI symptoms. They'll have constipation or cramping and things like this. And stool transplants were very effective in, in decreasing uh, those symptoms. Now they're going to have to, we're waiting for the long-term outcomes to see if those transplantations have an effect on, on behavior and on cognition. And there's potential there that it might. So there's other, you know, neurologic diseases too, like, you know, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, and, yeah. and neurodegeneration. And and if we can slow down neurodegeneration by helping microbes right. uh, do what they need to do.
0: Right. Or like the role of fat. You know, you've mentioned like mm-hmm. high fat diets, but fat is so important for a n- numerous numbers of numerous numbers. Yeah. So many. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like neurological diseases, both of the peripheral um, nervous system and the central nervous system mm-hmm. Yeah, and recreating neurons, like lipids are essential for that. Right. So.
1: Right. Yeah. It's probably the right kind of lipid yeah. and probably in the right abundance. Yeah. Yeah. So those things are, and it's probably variable, right? Between people. Some people might need a certain amount of dietary fat and others don't need that. So how much of that variation is just between the people or between the microbes and the people? Yeah. That, those are the keys, the key things that, that we look for in our lab is this inter-individual variability, because we know everybody has a different microbiome and we know people are different in response to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So how much of that variation is explained by these differences in the microbiome could help indicate which ones are important. Yeah. Um, so in a lot of our work, that's what we try to focus on. Cool. Yeah.
0: Last question for you. Does the microbiome, what we eat and what we do affects the microbiome, but does the microbiome affect our genes? Does it have any epigenetic Uh, changes?
1: uh, Yeah, you know, it's too early really to say, I think, uh, 100%, but definitely there are there is some evidence to support that. And one of the, I think, the strongest links between microbes and epigenetic change is the production of this molecule is called uh, butyrate. It's mm-hmm. a short-chain fatty acid. Our cells can't make it. Microbes are the only ones that can make it. It's made in the gut, and it's absorbed. 90% of it is absorbed either in the epithelium, that, that single cell layer, or by the time it gets to the liver. It's, there's very low amounts that make it into our circulation, but, but a lot of our uh, important tissues are, are bathed in butyrate. Butyrate's called a, it's HDAC. It's a, a histone deacetylase. And okay. Anyway, uh, it, it inhibits uh, certain...
0: So, so it deacetylates the histone molecules in DNA? Right. So it's an
1: inhibitor of uh, these conformational changes on DNA. And that is important in in epigenetic change and development of epigenetic change. Now, to study epigenetics, though, we have to study generations, (laughs) right? Right. And this is why there's no elephant evolutionary biologist out there, because we live (laughs) so long. And to understand whether changes in our diet change the microbiome, and whether those changes went on to have epigenetic changes in our offspring requires generational studies. Yeah. Even in lab animals that we use, um, these studies would be hard to do. Yeah. Um, most of the, you know, the length of an average NIH grant is like five years. So you have a very, very short window to, do, to look at some of these yeah. things. But, but there's potential there. There's uh, evidence to suggest that, yeah, microbes are important in epigenetics.
0: The thing that popped into my head was Native American populations and yeah. the epigenetic changes that must have occurred with drastic dietary... Dietary change. Change.
1: Right, change. right. right. No, and,
0: and you see they, like, they're like they all predisposed... Predisposed...
1: Dispo- yeah, yeah I mean, you know what I'm trying to yeah, say yeah. To,
0: to diabetes or uh-huh. all these uh-huh. metabolic syndrome, all these different yeah. so issues.
1: Here's a cool epidemiologic finding that's been supported by a lot of studies. But if you look at inflammatory bowel disease, like we were talking about earlier, if a person is born in a developing country, they have a certain risk of developing IBD. And the risk mm. is low compared compared to folks that are born in a developed country. But the really interesting thing is, if you're a child and you're born in a developing country and you move to a developed or an industrialized country, your risk factor changes and you become much more likely to get IBD. And the person that was born in the, in the well-to-do country moves to a not so well-to-do country, their risk factors go way down. So in real time in our life, um, folks, their risk factors can change for certain diseases just based on where they live. And you know, like, like you were saying, the cultures are different. The food is different. Your interactions with microbes and pathogens are different. Um, we don't know how to explain those things yet. We know that it is true based on who goes to the hospital for what disease. We can track rates of diseases, and we know that these things, this epidemiology, uh, these patterns exist. But what causes those patterns, we don't know yet. And I think it's a microbiome because I'm a <laughs> microbiologist, but um, it's It's a possible explanation. Yeah. So I agree. I think, uh, yeah, diabetes and in native populations are, it's a, it's a big problem. And, uh, yeah, maybe by understanding, um, those interactions we could help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And there's a student hopefully that might be working on that from, uh, the Crow Reservation, uh, maybe starting this summer. So she's really excited to look at diabetes in, in the Crow Reservation. Is
0: it, it's not Trish?
1: No, Trishina, um, has worked in the lab, and she might yeah. um, be doing some more. Um, this student's Lila, bull chief. Nice. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, <laughs> um, but we've had a lot of conversations about uh, developing some some research focused yeah. on diabetes on the Crow Reservation. Yeah. Um, so hopefully uh, that pans out.
0: Yeah, that would be so cool. Well, yeah. I think that's it. Thank you so much for no sitting problem. down. Yeah. Appreciate it.
1: No problem.